on my iPad the other day reading quotes from famous people. Everyone knows Winston Churchill. Good old Winnie, he always had a good sense of humor. Um, this story was about, he was somewhere in England having a really big hot debate with a female diplomat, fellow female diplomat. They didn't agree on things. So um, at the end of the conversation, she just looked at him with disgust and she said, you know, if I was your wife, I'd poison your tea. <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> so I gotta, I, I gotta give Winston Churchill a, a yeah, and I mean, he, he really just said it like a wash. No. But anyway, it's good. Um, you all remember the uh, story in the paper not too long ago about the three girls in Ohio who were uh, held captive for 10 years by a horrible, horrible man. And these three girls endured unspeakable things by this man. And so earlier this year, one of them got brave enough and kicked open the door and, got a, and released all three of them, saw the sky and the air for the first time in 10 years. And I, I just can't imagine how that must have felt for them. And um, it was bad enough that they endured the physical captivity of being really just a slave to, to this man. He, he, they were slaves, they were in bondage, and they could do nothing but what this man wanted them to do. And although this is physical slavery, it's, and it's indeed horrible, and I don't mean to diminish anything these young girls went through, Paul, when he talks in this chapter, he talks about spiritual slavery and spiritual bondage, which has far more devastating results. So. That's what we're going to kind of talk about today, and I'm um, going to turn on, we're going to go Romans 6, and we're going to start out um, with the first few, first few uh, verses of this chapter. I don't multitask too well this morning. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. And um, <clears throat> this chapter holds so many rich spiritual truths. Um, Paul doesn't really start out with the subject of slavery and bondage in the very beginning. He uh, actually starts out with the abuse of grace. Need to hire someone to do something for me. Anyway, um, in verses uh, 1 and 2, now Paul knew the Jewish mindset and he was anticipating their response to what he had said prior to this. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 are really nothing but a continuation of chapter 5. If we can keep in mind that um, in the original Greek, there were no chapter divisions. These were um, put in there by men later on to just help keep the segments of thought together. So if we could just sneak back to chapter 5, just a little bit to the last two verses, uh, we can kind of see Paul's train of thought a little bit better. Chapter 5, the last two verses, 20 and 21. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace covers our sin. And when we sin, grace is there to rescue us. So now let's read the opening verses of chapter 6, which is what we're studying today. Um, verses 1 and 2, and we can see even better where Paul's going. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, if grace increases every time we sin, then let's just keep on sinning. We'll keep on getting grace. That is exactly what Paul anticipated would be on the minds of his readers. And his response to this idea in verse 2 was a resounding, may it never be. 
how shall we who died to sin still live in it? The phrase, may it never be, is extremely emphatic in the original Greek. Um, it would be like saying, perish the thought, or God forbid. It, it was absurd to think this way. It's twisted thinking that one would take advantage of a good thing. Um, but that's the way the fallen sinful mind works. Some do teach that we have been given grace and we've been forgiven of sin, so therefore it really shouldn't matter how we live. I mean, after all, it's a done deal. We're saved, we're in. But this shows a total lack of love and gratefulness to the one who saved us. It's trampling on the precious blood of Christ. And although salvation may have cost us nothing, it cost Christ everything. It cost him his life and it cost God his son. So no genuine believer thinks this way. But Paul says, goes on to say, that we died to sin. Well, what does that mean? He's surely not saying that a believer never sins. Um, of course we, we do. We all sin from time to time. No, what he is saying is that the evidence of regeneration in a person's life is that there is a transformation of the desires of the heart. And both sin's power and domination were broken when Christ died. And we died with Christ. So therefore, sin no longer holds the same sway over, it, over us that it did before we were saved. Now, for a person to walk an aisle or say a prayer or, um, and claim to be a Christian, but yet continue to live a life that's characterized by the habitual practice of sin with no evidence of change whatsoever, cannot use grace as a scapegoat. Because Paul uses the word continue in sin. There is always, will always be some evidence of some change if one is a true believer. As one preacher said, just give me a sour grape, anything. You know, just a little piece of dried up raisin. First okay. um, John 3.7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as God is righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the very beginning. All true believers struggle with sin, and some of us have even had seasons in our lives um, where we've actually fallen in for a time. But struggling is not the same as practicing. And the fact that one's even struggling at all is a great indication um, that they are indeed a genuine believer, because unbelievers don't have struggle. They don't have a conflict with sin because whether they realize it or not, they enjoy their sin. They have no conviction otherwise. They're only doing what comes natural to their sin nature, and that is the sin. Even to those who look upright and moral, who don't have overt sins like murder and kidnapping and all these terrible things, they still have sins within their heart because they could, they, whatever they do, whatever their motives are, are self-directed. They're not designed to give glory to God. Um, Romans 8, which we'll be studying uh, later on, mentions this in verses 7 and 8 when it says, For the mind that is of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit itself to God's laws or ways, and indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this verse is referring to the unsaved mind and how it works um, as to sin. Then Paul goes on to say that the believer should not live a life of sin because he's dead to sin. How is a believer dead to sin if he's still subject to sinning at times? Now, 
I don't claim to know everything about medicine just because I'm a nurse, um, but I kind of know that you can't be dead and alive at the same time. You're either one or the other. I figured that out ahead of your dead patients. Anyway, um, but has the believer died to sin or not? Paul's progression of thought explains why and how we have actually died in the next few verses when he refers to our position in Christ. And those are verses 3 to 5. Um, this is spiritual baptism. Verses 3 to 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The passage states that we're baptized into Christ. This is not referring to water baptism. As one preacher said, this is a dry verse. Um, it's not a physical baptism. It's a spiritual baptism. When Christ died, we effectively died with him. When Christ was buried, we were buried with him. And when he rose again, we rose with him to newness of life. This all takes place in one moment, the moment we trust Christ for salvation. Water baptism is simply a symbolic picture of what takes place spiritually between Christ and the believer in this moment. The word baptism in Greek is baptizo, meaning to undergo or to immerse. We undergo a change and we are immersed in Christ at the moment of salvation, positionally, because of his death and his resurrection. When Christ died on the cross, he effectively, for the believer, broke the power of sin and death. Whatever happened that day on the cross with Christ happened to us spiritually the moment we trust in him. Our position has been changed forever. We are in Christ forever. It is a permanent position which can never be altered. This is why a true believer cannot continue to live as he lived as an unbeliever because that life died with Christ. How did this happen? Well, I don't think any of us can fully understand all the things that happened in the death of Christ. It's, it's, it will blow our minds. But the good thing is we don't have to understand it. We just have to believe it and trust God because it's his word. He said it. Christ's work on the cross did break the sin's power and domination over the believer. Paul must have known that these truths were not fully understood because he keeps using the word know this, consider that. Reckon yourselves to be, like, as if it already happened. You should know this. They needed to know that these things were true, and so do we. I, I, it took me a long time as a Christian to realize that, that this had actually happened. It had already happened in my life. It makes all the difference in how we view sin and our ability to have victory over it. Paul continues to explain this in verses 6 to 11 about the old man. old man. Um, when, I was, when I was doing this lecture, all I kept singing was that Wicked Witch song from The Wizard of Oz, The Witch is Dead, The Witch is Dead. Um, verses um, 6 to 11, knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death he died, he died once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So, and then Paul says it again, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. This is the first mention of slaves and masters so far now in this passage. As I said in the beginning when I told the story about the, the three girls and, and uh, their escape, physical slavery is indeed a bad thing, but spiritual slavery is far worse because it has eternal consequences. Um, if Christ died and is now alive, then so are we. If Christ died and broke the power of sin, then we are his and are now free from his control over us. This is probably one of the most powerful truths, at least to me anyway. Paul writes that our old self is crucified and the body of sin is done away with, but I still say, why do we still sin? Well, it is not sin in and of itself, it's the power that was broken, and it is the way in which we sin. It's the way in which sin operates in the life of the believer that has been changed. We no longer sin with the same attitude and intensity that we did when we were unsaved. We were changed. Something wonderful has happened to us. We were given something special. When we were immersed into Christ at that moment of salvation, we were given a new nature. This new nature was not added to the old nature. It replaced it. Paul refers to it as the old self the unregenerate nature, the nature you had before you came to Christ. That nature, the old one, was crucified with Christ and you've now been given a new divine nature. This is a truth that not only the first century Christians seem to be unaware of, but some of us are unaware of this too. But it is truth nonetheless. Second Peter 1.4 For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. The notion that the believer has two natures, the old and the new living within themselves, fighting like two hungry dogs trying to duke it out, um, I don't see this in scripture. Uh, if that were true, then the Christian would never have victory over sin. You'd be half saved and half lost. No, when a person comes to Christ for salvation, he is given a new nature. Galatians 2.20 tells us that the old man was crucified with Christ, and the life we now live in the flesh is to be lived by faith in the Son of God, who is Christ Jesus. But the one passage I like the best is the one in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold all things have become new. Sin no longer has the same power and domination over the new nature that it had over the old. And what is the difference? The difference is the believer now has a choice as to whether he wants to sin or not. The old nature never had this choice. If a believer sins, it's because he chooses to sin. The unbeliever does not have a choice. He can do nothing but what his nature dictates, to sin. Sin is too powerful for him to overcome it. But for the Christian, victory is possible. Victory over sin has been made possible because of this new nature. 
I do not mean sinless perfection, as some of the holiness movements propose. Um, we'll never be totally perfect until we're with Christ in glory. But the reason why we still sin at times is because this new nature lives within the body of unredeemed flesh. And it's this body of unredeemed flesh that is the avenue. It is the avenue and the entryway that all external temptations, lusts um, in the world enter and operate. So as long as we're in this unredeemed flesh, we are, we're going to remain in this position until we go to glory. But at least we've been released from the domination. As one Bible teacher put it, we are, not in an old, we are not an old man in a new suit, but a new man in an old suit. In other words, we're not dressing up the old nature. We have a new nature, and, but we are still living in redeemed, unredeemed flesh. The Christian still sins, yes, but not in the same way. Okay, Paul goes on to talk about presenting our bodies to Christ. Presenting your bodies to Christ in verses 12 to 13. Therefore, meaning what I, looking back at what I just said, Paul says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting your members of your body to sins. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sins as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is what's commonly known as progressive sanctification. When salvation takes place, it's a one-time thing. It happens in an instant, and never to be repeated, but whereas the presenting of our members to God, and that means every member, by the way, um, mind, soul, body, organs, mouths, ears, and I try and do this a lot, anyway, um, is not something that happens overnight. It's something that grows day by day by the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to live in submission to the Word of God. But, again, the other side of the coin, this is no way diminishes human responsibility. We always are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. You have heard that saying, let go and let God, like we don't have to do anything. We just wait for God to do it. He does all the work. But the Bible doesn't teach this. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. This does not teach that we work for our salvation. That's, salvation is always by grace through faith. What it means is that believer has to put some effort into becoming holy. Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. For God is holy. And that's 1 Peter 1, 14-16. 1 Thessalonians 4 has a couple of verses, 3 and 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. And Paul himself even said in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that he beats his body into submission, making it a slave. That doesn't mean that he beats himself up physically. 
but that he disciplines every area of his life. He compares the Christian life to one who's running a race, like a marathon, striving to get over the finish line and win the race. Um, Michelle knows this feeling, um, so don't a few others here that run. Um, just the training alone that goes into preparing for such a race requires such rigorous discipline and hard work. No one just gets up and runs a marathon. I can barely get to my car. Um, but in the same manner, we are to discipline our bodies and our minds to please Christ. The next verses explain how any of this is even possible. Um, a believer who sins can't say he couldn't help it or shift the responsibility of sin to something else. We know this is very popular today. Um, everything we do is someone else's fault uh, or it's a disease. Um, sin doesn't allow for blame shifting, such as a difficult childhood or someone else's sinful behavior and attitude. We are to own our sin and understand that the death of Christ has paved the way for us to live differently now. And the next segment is slaves to a different master. The Israelites in Egypt, the Christians during the Roman Empire, and right up to the Civil War in the 1860s, the evil practice of slavery was always alive and well. And unfortunately, in some countries, it still is. Um, it was commonplace to buy and sell slaves at the slave market in order to work the large plantations of the South. When a slave was purchased, that slave belonged only to one master, the master who bought him, and no one else. Oftentimes, the slaves would be branded either with a mark or a piercing of some sort as proof of ownership. No slave ever served two masters, and not all masters were alike. Some were cruel, but yet some were very kind. So kind that even after the Emancipation Proclamation given by President Lincoln, some chose to even stay with their masters even after freedom had been given to them. But Paul talks about slavery from a spiritual standpoint in reference to sin as being the master. In verses 14 and 15 he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Does that sound familiar? Paul's practically repeating what he said in the very beginning of this chapter. Do we continue a life of sin because of grace? And he says, may it never be that strong, emphatic Greek term again. No. In other words, today we might say, are you kidding me? Or I keep hearing, seriously? Like, that, you can't, I can't be hearing that. He's repeating himself because this is an important truth. Verses 16 through 21. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, you're slaves to the one whom you obey? whether it's sin in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were, past tense, slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, the gospel, to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, it already happened, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. 
And what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? As long as these verses may seem, they're pretty straightforward. The slave's job is to obey the master in whatever he's ordered to do. He doesn't do his own thing, he follows orders. Paul starts, starts out this segment by saying that from a spiritual standpoint, if someone is a slave to obedience, meaning to God, then his life will be a righteous one and he will live. But if he's a slave to sin, then he will die. Paul switches gears and thanks God that his readers, the Roman believers, switched masters when they obeyed the gospel of salvation and they were freed from sin. But then what happened? He says they became slaves of righteousness. That's right, they're still slaves, but to a better master. Many times Paul calls himself a slave. He calls himself a bondservant in the beginning of many of his epistles. The notion that people can be free is a lie. No one is ever truly free. This is one of the reasons many do not want to hear about Christ and salvation because it involves submitting to someone in authority as though they weren't already doing this. They don't realize it. I have news for them. They're already under submission to Satan's dominion of sin over their lives, whether they realize it or not. It is our master that dictates what we are slaves to, whether it be a slave to Christ or a slave to Satan's sinful domain. The transfer of title or ownership from the master of sin to the master of righteousness can only take place in Christ by believing and then obeying the gospel, which, was, which is presented in God's word. By realizing that you are a sinner who has offended a holy God and personally trusting Christ's atoning death on the cross as a payment for your sins personally. And the next segment is the benefits and consequences of our master. Verses 22 and 23 close out this chapter. But now, now that you are a believer, having been freed from sin, past tense, and enslaved to God, transfer of ownership, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And what is the outcome? Eternal life. And then he ends it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a way to end chapter. God offers us a free gift, that of his son, who died to set us free from the evil dictator of sin. Once we accept this free gift, we are released from being a slave to sin, which will only kill us in the end. Instead, we are a slave to a gracious, kind, and compassionate God who has our best interest in mind always, and we will one day live with forever and ever. So I just plead with anyone in this room who has not called upon Christ for salvation. I pray that you'll consider the benefits and the consequences. This life is only a blink in the time of eternity. It's only a little small portion of the great span of eternity. And this may be the only chance you get. Life is but a breath, the Bible says, so do not put it off. Today, today is the day of salvation. Make sure you know who your master is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. And although we may not understand exactly everything in it, Lord, we know that what you say is true, and we need to trust you, trust you for every word of it. And Lord,
Lord, we just ask that the Holy Spirit would just speak to the hearts of everybody in here. Those who are believers who still feel that they cannot have victory over sin, they can. And those who do not know you yet, Lord, that you would just prick their heart and shine the light of the gospel into their soul, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.